Thank you, Rachel. Folks, you're going to need a couple of things uh, the next while. You've got everybody get a poster, uh, an Isaiah poster. Um, you'll want to have Isaiah 54 and 55 open before you. I think you'd be lost without it, to be honest. Uh, sometimes a, a preacher uh, will look at a Bible verse and then speak without too much reference to it. Uh, sometimes every sentence along the way is really just uh, sticking very close to the text. We're in the, the latter kind of a sermon tonight. It's the text, these two chapters, um, that's going to lead us and guide us. I, I should be absolutely despondent this evening. Um, you, you might have all sorts of reasons why you think I should be despondent, but let me tell you what I have in mind. Um, so it's January. Um, a lot of people uh, struggle with January. The, the January blues is a, a real thing. Um, it's, it, it's just hard, you know. You've done half a winter, uh, but, but Christmas is over. There's nothing, it feels like there's not so much to look forward to, long, dark days. So January, people can feel a little bit despondent. But to add to any January blues that I might have, I'm middle-aged. I mean, you know, my head's supposed to be permanently down. Um, this came home to me in a, in a fresh way uh, during the, the Christmas holidays. I was reading screw tape letters, uh, C.S. Lewis. And I was reminded what a difficult season uh, this can be for people of faith, people who are trying to walk with Jesus. So whenever uh, Screwtape, the senior devil, is talking to his apprentice, Wormwood, he's trying to encourage him because the, the Christian, the believer that he's trying to attack and undermine, it hasn't worked. This guy's going well, he's growing in his faith, he's flourishing. So Screwtape tells Wormwood, it's all right, just be patient. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. So, I'm a middle-aged man. It's January. There are at least two reasons why I should be feeling pretty despondent. Over the Christmas holidays, we were reading another uh, author, James Houston, and he offered an alternative. He offered his readers to look for a remembrance of joy, to remember some of the real things in life that bring deep joy. For me, it felt like an invitation to, to remember the joy of my salvation, and that's what we're going to do here this evening. We're going to think of the joy of our salvation as we get back to Isaiah. You've got your posters. I'm going to talk about this just for a second. Um, why would I do that? Well, I'm conscious this has been a really long series. We started back in September. Um, I'm just keen that people who have been with us on the journey don't forget where we are in the journey and any Sunday night, anybody could arrive for a very first time to be a guest uh, at our series. So we are, we've worked our way through. The best way to understand this is, is the boxes on that page are very helpful. So we, um, those of you who are here with us will know that we played a bit of a blinder and got to the end of chapter 39 in three sermons. 
Um, so we really uh, worked pretty fast at the start. Um, and, and the titles there, I think, uh, speak for themselves. Isaiah has to speak about judgment and hope, first of all, for the city of Jerusalem. Then in chapters 13 to 27, for all the nations around Jerusalem. And then there's a, a bit in the middle of the book where actually a bit of narrative kicks in and he tells the story of the, the, the fall, the imminent fall of Jerusalem. Then you'll see a very big discontinuity between chapters 39 and 40. Uh, there's actually quite a lot of time passes between the, the writings in the first 39 chapters and those in the second part of the book. The second part of the book, both parts of Isaiah talk about judgment and hope, but the first part of the book, you would probably say majors judgment. The second part of the book, majors hope. So since chapter 40, we've been in this very future-oriented and hopeful uh, place. If you look at chapters 49 to 55, you'll see a heading there that talks about the servant. Uh, and this is really bringing us up to speed to where Rachel was leading us earlier. We looked at four different uh, parts of Isaiah's prophecies that talked about the servant, this mysterious figure. And we recognized that the servant, although it talks in language that you could easily uh, describe Israel in those terms, we realized that eventually, particularly in chapter 53, it's, it's crystal clear that this is talking about a future perfect servant of God, none other than Jesus himself. So what we're having to do tonight is we're going to finish that section 49 to 55, leaving us just with one major section to go. There's no Bible reading. I'm not going to start now with a Bible reading. And the reason for that is, as I said, I need you to have your Bibles open before you. We're going to read chunks of text as we go. I just didn't see that reading 10 verses at the start uh, was going to help us in any way. So just have, have chapters 54 and 55 open before you. What, what we're going to find in these chapters, I think, is that they take the, the work of the suffering servant... Chapter 53, Rachel's done a great job of reminding us of it. And Isaiah's going to show us, well, if the suffering servant did that work, if Jesus Christ went to the cross in our place, what might the implications of that be? What kind of a world does the gospel create? So that's what we're going to be thinking about here this evening. Chapter 54 is where we'll put in uh, this, uh, maybe better say this, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time in chapter 54. Don't do that thing where you extrapolate and multiply by two. All right, I've been doing 25 minutes and you're thinking he's going to do, no, we'll do much less on the second chapter. Okay, chapter 54, God speaks to Jerusalem. What does he want them now to hear? In the light of that incredible chapter in 53, the suffering servants sacrificial work. How does he speak to his people in the light of Christ's death on the cross? He speaks, I think, of three realities, uh, and this gives you a wee bit of a framework for where we're going this evening. A family repopulated, a marriage restored, and a city rebuilt. All right? Jerusalem repopulated. 
those opening verses of chapter 54, they're startling. Um, they're quite, probably sound strange to us, but they're not, I don't think they have their full impact for us that they would have had for their original readers. God's speaking through his prophet. He says, sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into, into song, shout for joy. I, I just want to slow down right there and be very careful. Barrenness, uh, the inability to bear a child that you wish you could bear is one of the most heartbreaking of human experiences. So what we're immediately confronted with the question, what can God possibly mean when he invites a barren woman to, to shout for joy? Well, if, if, we, if we just started to, to come up with an answer to that on our own terms, I, I think we'd get it wrong because our culture is, is very different than Isaiah's on this particular issue. So I want to take a few moments to think about what, what it means for Isaiah to talk about barrenness. Let me put it in a nutshell. In the culture of Isaiah, the more children you had, the better your family and the happier you were as a woman. Why? Well, for at least three reasons. Let me have a go at this. First of all, your children in that culture were your labor force. All right? So most of the work that people did, they did in their own household economy. So the more children you have, the more land you can manage, the more crops you can harvest, the more wealth you create, and the more security and status comes with it. If you have a big family, you get to be big people in your community. And if you don't, you don't. Your children, secondly, are your pension. If you got old and didn't have children to go and live with, you quite literally might starve to death. And by the way, if you wanted to be sure that you had two or three adult children to look after you in your old age, you might have to have eight to ten children to give you that outcome because so many died at childbirth or at infancy. There's a third reason why a woman would want to have as many children as is absolutely pos uh, possible, and this is a collective one. It's a bit less privatized. Your children were your military deterrent. Think about it for a second. If everybody in a nation didn't get on with having as many kids as was absolutely possible, then the guys next door, over the border, with their bigger families, raise a bigger army, and before long they're crashing over the border and invading you and conquering you. Having kids was a matter of national security. So when you put these kind of factors all together, you'll begin to see now why a, a woman who bears children in that culture, she's a national hero. And you can see why a woman who didn't bear children would have not only the kind of heartache that, that a person today who longs for children would have, but actually some added pressures which would make this almost unbearable. 
it was unbearable for the women in that culture. Do you remember Rachel, Jacob's wife? She wanted to have children, but she wasn't having children. What is it she says to her husband? Give me children or I die. If I can't have children, I don't want to go on living. That's the culture Isaiah is addressing when he brings the word of God to the people and he says, sing, O barren woman. And we're back to our question, how does that work? How can God possibly ask a barren woman to shout for joy? In a culture that says your whole identity depends on your, your ability and, and the number of children you've had, God seems to be saying, I'm going to make you sing even without children. Well, let's, let's keep with the passage, work out how this can be. Look, he says, verse 1, Sing, shout for joy, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. What? Deliberately paradoxical. God seems to be saying, happy is the woman who has no children because she has more children than the woman who has lots of children. All right? Doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense until we've seen what we've just been talking about here, that in this culture, women mean value and worth and dignity and honor and God seems to be saying there's a value and a worth and a dignity and honor available without having children. And this is utterly radical in that culture. Where do we go with all of this? Folks, we don't live in ancient Israel where a woman is regarded as worthless unless she has no children. But I don't want to ignore the reality that a, a person without children in our culture may still feel disappointed and maybe somehow looked down upon. People end up feeling second rate for that reason and for other reasons in our culture. And you see, it has, it has all to do with what the idols of your culture are. In ancient Israel, for a woman to have children was an idolatrous thing almost. What do I mean by idols? Idols are the things that we set up and say, unless I have this, I can't be happy. I can't live. Like Rachel, we say, give me my idol or let me die. Life's not worth living unless I have children. The things that my culture tells me I need to have. In our culture, it's not, it's not just children. There can be other things things that we need to have or else life's not worth living. Good looks, a career, success, popularity, wealth, whatever. The very powerful message of, of this passage is that, that God has singled out the very people in the culture who are most regarded as unfortunate, the people who have missed out on the thing that the culture says they most need, and he says, sing. Shout for joy. Because you've got more value and worth and dignity and honor than if you had a dozen children, than if you had every badge of success in your culture. 
I'm giving you much, much more. Folks, it's quite breathtaking. This is what God gives. This is what happens in the light of God's salvation. Before we move on from this idea of the, the barren woman altogether, let's notice, let's take it at face value and see what's actually promised. Verses two to three, God tells his people to prepare for a population explosion. Enlarge your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, don't hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, bust out the crash, is what God's saying. Folks, I, could, I couldn't read these passages and reflect on them without thinking about this place, Kirkpatrick Memorial. Some of you know this story because I've told it a million times, and some of you don't. When I first heard of this place, uh, 2003, 17 years ago nearly, I heard that it was a church that our denomination was thinking of amalgamating or closing, uh, it, it had, uh, the, the community here had diminished to such an extent. But that's only part of, of the reality. One particular aspect of it is, is the lack of children that there were around the place. There were a few children came to the Brownies and the Sunday Club, but most of them were from outside of the church family. I tried to remember the children that really belonged to this church family back then. I think it's somewhere between four and six children. I knew immediately that God needed to turn this place around. So I spoke to the two communities that I knew best, Highkirk and Ballymena, where I was coming from, Hamilton Road and Bangor. And I said, guys, pray for us. Pray that the Lord will send some young adults here and pray that in his time, there'll be some children here. That's what I asked them to pray. They prayed, God worked, and the rest is history. Well, it's not history, it's our present, isn't it? It's every Sunday morning. It takes 10 minutes for the children to leave to, to go to Sunday club. A couple of statistics to bring this home to you. I said there were four to six children in 2003. Do you know how many children under 18 we have on our database? These are only the children who really belong to our church families, not the others who come to BB and GB. We had four or six back then. We have 237 now. If you put all the congregations, the 550 or so congregations of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland in a, in a sort of a ranked list, this wee church here in East Belfast is number three out of 550. Folks, I asked people to pray that God would give us some young adults and some children. I forgot to tell them to stop. I think it maybe, I need, need a wee email out to those two churches. I just say that to point at something and say God still does this work. His salvation takes form. It's not it's not abstract, it's a real thing. He turns people around and he turns communities around and we've been blessed to see it. 
So the family is going to be repopulated, says Isaiah, uses this metaphor of the barren woman. But the Lord's more to say. Look, look with me. The metaphor changes then in verses 4 to 7. He talks about Jerusalem experiencing something like a marriage restored. Let's read it together. Talking still to Jerusalem as a desolate woman, verse 4, he says, Do not be afraid. You'll not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You'll not be humiliated. You'll forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. It's one of the most beautiful pictures in the whole Bible. Your maker is your husband. We have been saying so far that a person who has no children can have every bit as much dignity as a person who has children. And now we're saying that a person who isn't married can have every bit as much standing in the kingdom of God as a person who is. Why is that? Because your maker is your husband. Married or single, you have a husband in the living God. Folks, it's an image that's used repeatedly throughout the Bible. Jesus described himself on occasion as the bridegroom. He's our husband. John talks in Revelation 21 about the people of God, a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Isaiah repeats the idea when he says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over you. Think about that for a second. We're not, this isn't landing with us. I'm going to try to see if this can land with us a bit. A bridegroom, a husband, on his wedding day, standing in the church, up here. Our bridegroom stand here, and he's waiting. He's waiting for her to come. And he knows it's going to be the most beautiful moment in his life the love, the longing. That's how the Lord thinks of you. He's here waiting for you. This isn't a one-off in Isaiah. Flick with me, chapter 62, verse 12. He's still talking about Jerusalem. Isaiah, next time you write your book, don't go in circles so much. Go in a straight line. It'll be easier for me to preach. 62, talking about the people. They will be, sorry, chapter 62, verse 12. They'll be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called the sought after a city no longer deserted, the sought after. Who of us doesn't want to be sought after? The longed for. I love that. Reminds me of a a beautiful song on a Deacon Blue album 
2014. The album's called A New House, and there's a song on there called The Living. And the, the chorus is, is very interesting. Um, what Ricky Ross does as he writes, he just seems to take a, a load of biblical metaphors and stack them up without trying to explain them too much. And he asks us to apply them to us, to imagine that they're really for us. He asks, can we be the precious, the jewels, the longed for? Are we the forgiven, the bright stars of the morning, the living? Did you see it in there? The longed for? The sought after? This is, I'm not trying to make this feel uncomfortable. I just don't want it not to land with you. That's who we are. When I started preaching Isaiah, I knew that moments like this would happen, and, and here we are. Where the stuff we were reading was just too beautiful and would struggle to own it. Your maker is your husband. You're the sought after, the longed for. Folks, if we're going to use marriage as a metaphor, um, the Bible is a very honest book and real kind of a book. So we're not surprised, actually, when the, the marriage metaphor, marriages go through rocky spells. And Isaiah is not afraid to talk about that. Look at verse 6. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says the Lord. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I'll have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Isaiah's having to be real about this marriage between God and his people, your behavior, he's reminding them, it's resulted in a period of, of painful separation. He's talking, of course, about the, the exile in Babylon. These folks are in Babylon. They're, they're experiencing this exile right now. But God gives Isaiah this beautiful message. He says to the people, I'm bringing you back. A marriage being restored. God's bringing his wife back home. Just when you think it can't get any better, it does. Verses 9 and 10. So the marriage has been restored. You might wonder, like if you, you read that, what's Noah popping up here for in the middle of Isaiah? Well, once you read it, it sort of makes sense. Noah, remember, was lived in a time when God had to act in judgment, but then promised his people that he would never act in the same judgment again. So God says through his prophet, to me, this is like the days of Noah. I swore that the waters of Noah would never cover the earth again. So now I've sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Wow. 
a family repopulated, a marriage restored, and, and even a marriage vow renewal. That's what happens when God's working his salvation. That's what the suffering servant has achieved. That's what Jesus won for us by his death on the cross. Let's keep going. A family repopulated, a marriage renewed, and a city rebuilt. Look with me, verses 11 to 17. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I'll rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I'll make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you'll be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You'll have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It'll not come near you. Folks, we don't have time tonight to dwell on these verses at all, but let me just give you an idea of, of the beauty of what's being promised here. This imagery in Isaiah 54 is so beautiful that when John is writing his revelation, when we get right to the end of the story, when John's looking into the future and, and writing what he sees, the glory of what God's preparing for his people, he reaches back to this chapter. And he lifts a lot of that imagery. He tells us about a city so beautiful that anybody who hears about it would want to call it home. Folks, this, this is what the servant has achieved for us with his suffering. We're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the most captivating message anyone has ever heard. Whether we're married or single, whether we have children or not, whether we feel at home in this world or a stranger, in Christ, God gives us a husband who loves us, children and a family to be a part of, and a city, a place to call home. It's amazing what God offers us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaiah knows it. And I think that's why he moves the way he does from chapter 54 into 55. He speaks God's invitation in the most evocative language imaginable. Everything he's described in 54, you'd, goodness, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Who wouldn't be hungry for that and thirsty for that? So he says, come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what isn't bread and your labor on what doesn't satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good. You'll find delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. If you jump down to verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he'll have mercy on them to our God for he will truly pardon. We're nearly done, but we're going to pause there for a second. Um, 
We're going to do a thing that we did before Christmas. These, these verses of Isaiah, these chapters, have people have had a go at writing them in songs, and we had a go at singing some of these before Christmas. We're going to sing a couple to finish here this evening. Um, we're going to sing one just now, a song, Seek Ye the Lord, All Ye People. There's something weird about these songs. I'll, I'll maybe need a word with Monty about this. He might be able to explain it to me. They were all written in the 70s these songs that come from these rich passages in Isaiah, at least the ones I know. So, I don't know, there was something about whatever the guys were taking in the 60s that was getting them, they just noticed, they noticed the beautiful stuff more than, uh, than songwriters have since. These songs don't sound like 2020 songs, I'll give you that. But what they do do is they allow us to embody this invitation, to 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 go home singing these words, go into the week remembering them. We said at the outset that chapter 54 talks a lot about Jerusalem. Yes, it, it's talking in a way that makes sense of the historical situation, but it's also talking about the people of God. Uh, and we've seen that as we've looked at chapter 54. In chapter 55, there's, there's just another, another ripple added um, this, this restoring work that God's doing. It's not just for Jerusalem, but it's for the whole world. Look, look particularly at verse 5. Surely you will summon nations you do not know, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Do you see the logic? When this city's rebuilt, where its people know intimacy with God, where they're a family together, there's a, a life there, a life of such quality that it serves like a missional magnet to draw other people to it. People from all parts, people we don't even know yet, they come running to be a part of this city, to be part of this community of God. Folks, I've seen glimpses of that. I've seen it when I get to talk to somebody who's started to come to church and they'll, they'll tell me about a Christian friend they have who's just so winsome that they needed to know more or, or an interaction they had with a part of the church family. Recognizing, of course, all the time that the place isn't perfect, but there's, there's something here. God among his people Folks, I've seen that, and my prayer is that I'd see a whole lot more. In the remainder of the verse, God simply tells us that his plans won't be thwarted. There's a section there where he talks about his word. Look at where he says, verse 11, my word that goes out from my mouth, it, it won't return to me empty. It'll accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Everything we've read here, chapters 54 and 55, God's going to do it. He's as good as his word. Folks, I started by telling you this evening why I should be despondent. You might have your own reasons. I don't mean to make light of them. 
maybe you're going into 2020 with some difficult things to be dealing with. We've come tonight to God's word for a remembrance of joy, for a reminder of the joy of our salvation. Rachel started by pointing us back to the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. We've been thinking about, well, what difference all that made? In Christ, God gives us a husband who loves us, a family to be a part of, and a city to call home. Isaiah closes these two chapters that we've been looking at. Look at verse 12. He says, you shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills, they'll, they'll burst into song before you. The biblical writers do this. You see it a lot in the Psalms. They, they talk about nature bursting into life. C.S. Lewis, I think, does a bit of it in the Narnia Chronicles, if I remember right. Like, imagine if the, the actual fabric of the world around us, that, that's what we're being asked to. There's, there's this much joy that the mountains and the hills join the song. The trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of a thorn bush, there'll be a juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. And this will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Folks, let's, let's enter 2020. Maybe like me, you have a sense that there are reasons why despondency might reign. Let's put those behind us. Let's remember the God whom we love, our maker who is our husband. And let's go into the year choosing joy.